It's the 29th of April in the year of our salvation, 2008. It is the Feast of St. Catherine of Siena in the new calendar. And this is Father Z with another podcast. Today we will delve into the recent controversy about a well-known Catholic American politician who is pro-abortion, as well as divorced and remarried, receiving Holy Communion at a papal mass during Benedict XVI's recent visit to the United States. And to drill into this, we will welcome Robert Novak, who wrote a piece in the Washington Post yesterday, and also Cardinal Edward Egan of New York. And then to see if the events of the ancient church can shed some light on today's controversy, we will have a look at St. Ambrose of Milan and his conflict with the Emperor Theodosius. Pope Benedict XVI had a wonderful apostolic visit to the United States recently, during this month of April. Uh, He observed his 81st birthday in America, as well as the third anniversary of his election to the See of Peter. And his mass in Washington, D.C. provoked a lot of sharp controversy and coverage in the blogosphere and elsewhere, mainly negative, uh, especially about the musical choices and the kind of in-your-face multiculturalism. It was just as if uh, the people who organized the mass had never read anything that Benedict XVI had ever written about music or liturgy. But I digress. We can deal with that in another audio project. Uh, and also uh, his uh, Pope Benedict's Masses in New York, which were uh, exceptionally dignified and elevating in respect to the liturgical excellence and good music. But both of these Masses in Washington and New York sparked controversy. Uh, because some American Catholic politicians who are firm supporters of abortion presented themselves for communion. Now in New York, a former presidential candidate, former mayor of New York, the very famous Rudy Giuliani, who is also divorced and remarried, uh, presented himself for Holy Communion at the Pope's Mass. Uh, Even though he didn't go to the Pope himself, uh, this did not go unnoticed. As a matter of fact, uh, afterwards, uh, though the press and the blogosphere and everyone were talking about it, there was absolute silence about this reception of communion by these politicians on the part of both the Archbishop of Washington and the Cardinal Archbishop of New York. And this silence and the very fact that these politicians received communion stirred up again a very important but sometimes very bitter debate over why some Catholic bishops seem to be unwilling to address the more famous and politically powerful members of their flock 
when they stray from Catholic teachings or stray away from or violate really the practices of our faith in the full light of the public square which is a very important thing it's one thing to sin you know publicly it's another thing to do so very uh, privately and uh, both uh, the public and the private uh, violation of our church's teachings or practices require different reactions on the part of our shepherds of our church but so deafening was the silence of the chief shepherds of the churches of washington and of new york that a well-known writer in the press robert novak who is a convert from judaism so he really knows his stuff about the faith on uh, monday april 28th wrote a piece in the washington post no less taking these bishops to task very sharply so let's hear what he had to say now keep in mind there are a few factual inaccuracies in novak's article now, for example none of the politicians that novak mentions uh, that i was able to determine received Holy Communion from Archbishop Sambi. As a matter of fact, we have photos of John Kerry and Christopher Dodd receiving from a priest somewhere else, not from the Papal Nuncius. But even though there were some errors, the substance of the editorial by Robert Novak stands. And let's hear it. Come on, Gaby, hurry up! 24 hours! Hey, why don't you look where you're going? You think it was your first time in New York? It is! New York, New York, New York, New York! It's a hell of a town! We've got one day here and another minute. For pro-choice politicians, a pass with the Pope by Robert D. Novak, Washington Post, Monday, April 28, 2008, page A5. In the aftermath of the U.S. visit by Pope Benedict XVI, traditional Catholics are asking a troublesome question. Did pro-choice politicians receiving communion at the papal masses indicate the Pope had softened on the abortion question? The answer is no. On the contrary, it reflected disobedience to Benedict by the archbishops of New York and Washington. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senators John Kerry, Christopher Dodd, and Edward M. Kennedy received communion at Nationals Park in Washington, as did former Mayor Rudolph Giuliani at Yankee Stadium in New York. Archbishop Donald Wuerl of Washington and Cardinal Edward Egan, Archbishop of New York, invited them. Given choice seats, they took communion as a matter of course. Vatican sources say the Pope has not retreated from his long-held position that pro-choice politicians should be deprived of communion, but the decision in Washington and New York were not his. The effect was to dull the Pope's messages of faith, obligation, and compassion. In his Yankee Stadium homily, he talked of authority and obedience, acknowledging that, quote, these are not easy words to speak nowadays, close quote. They surely are not, for four former presidential candidates and two princes of the church, representing Catholics who defy their faith's doctrine on abortion. 
Benedict's position was unequivocal when he was Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Asked in 2004 whether Carey, as the Democratic presidential nominee, should be allowed to take communion, he replied, quote, The minister of Holy Communion must refuse to distribute it. Close quote. Ratzinger's demeanor necessarily has changed with his elevation from doctrinal enforcer to global pastor, but he has not altered his position. When the Pope arrived in Brazil a year ago, he declared, quote, The killing of an innocent human child is incompatible with going into communion in the body of Christ. Close quote. Benedict did not reiterate that position in Washington and New York because a pope traveling abroad is influenced by the stance of local church authorities. American bishops are divided. Archbishop Raymond Burke of St. Louis leads those who believe pro-choice politicians cannot receive communion. Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, world's predecessor and Archbishop of Washington, took the opposite position. Blessed with charm and political finesse, McCarrick was not about to clash with his archdiocese's most famous parishioners. Whirl is considered less political than McCarrick, but he is hardly less averse to colliding with powerful laymen. He could have simply not invited the pro-choice politicians to a mass where there was no room for the vast majority of Catholics who wanted to attend. The five pro-choice Catholics took communion from the hand of Archbishop Pietro Sambi, the Pope's representative to the United States as apostolic delegate. In New York, Giuliani receiving communion was even more remarkable. Unlike Pelosi and Kennedy, who attend Mass regularly, the former mayor says he goes to church only occasionally, usually for holidays or funerals. Abortion aside, Giuliani's third marriage would make him ineligible for communion because his second marriage was not annulled by the church. But Cardinal Egan is no more apt than Cardinal McCarrick was to offend the powerful, and Giuliani was invited to the Mass. There are devout pro-life Catholics who oppose rejection of any worshipper at the communion rail, but believe bishops should publicly manifest disapproval of Catholic pro-choice politicians. The bishops of Washington and New York do not. During the Mass at which Whirl was installed as Archbishop of Washington in 2006, he shook hands with Carey and Kennedy seated side by side. At Yankee Stadium, Benedict spoke of the, quote, inalienable dignity and rights, close quote, of, quote, the most defenseless of all human beings, the unborn child in the mother's womb, close quote. In parishes across the country, the faithful hear their priests echo the Holy Father's words. Those professions ring hollow when pro-choice politicians are honored as they were during the Pope's visit. Hey, Gaby! It says here there are 20,000 streets in New York City. Not counting McDougal Alley in the heart of Greenwich Village, a charming thoroughfare filled with... Here we go again! The famous places... Now, did you hear how Novak identified clearly the two different camps? Those who, are think, those who think that politicians who are pro-abortion... I, you know, I just can't say pro-choice. I think we have to say pro-abortion. 
shouldn't receive Holy Communion until they have made public redress for their stands and their actions. And on the other hand, those who think that those politicians can uh, receive, or at least uh, even if they don't think they can receive Holy Communion, they don't say anything about whether or not they should, so they don't take any action in that regard. So there are two camps. And Novak mentioned Archbishop Burke of St. Louis on the one hand. Uh, he's, Archbishop Burke is a very clear-thinking bishop, a very good and brilliant canonist. Uh, he has a great experience of this. He's really led the charge in this very controversial issue. He addressed it when he was still a bishop in Wisconsin before being moved to St. Louis. Uh, subsequently, um, he has published a very uh, clear, very accurate brief about the law concerning this. Uh, he's really leading the charge, and I think he has to be listened to. We have a great uh, debt of gratitude to give to Archbishop Burke in being so clear on this issue. Uh, on the other hand, there are those bishops who uh, really fudge on it. As a matter of fact, uh, Novak mentioned uh, Theodore McCarrick, the car former Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, who... I contend watered down. Some would even go so far as to say distorted something that uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, when he was still prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, wrote to the American Bishops' Conference in advance of the last presidential election. Uh, so there are some real difficult uh, dynamics among the bishops themselves in the in the Catholic Church in a, in the United States, and we need uh, some controversial moments, perhaps like the one that arose in New York, to help us clarify the situation. Uh, you see, what's at the heart of the issue here is that when a person who is very much in the public eye professes himself to be a Catholic and then very publicly acts and speaks against Catholic teaching, uh, especially on so serious an issue as abortion, or acts uh, in such a way as to show that he doesn't respect you know, the church's laws and, and so forth. What he does is he commits a scandal, at the very least. A scandal is where when you act in such a way that it leads other people to become weaker in their faith or perhaps even imitate you. That's what scandal really is. When you act so that other people then also sin, you draw them into your actions. And if you do that very publicly, then you must not receive Holy Communion because Holy Communion is a public demonstration of the acceptance of the Church's teaching and practices. You can go and make a private confession. That's fine. You can be privately penitent. You can you can do all these things, receive absolution privately, and that's something that you should do anyway. But when you're a public figure and you've made all these public statements and done things in the public eye, in the public square, then you also have to make a public demonstration that you've changed your position and you've come to accept the church's teaching and practices. You have to make public redress because the redress has to be proportioned to the scandal that's been caused. Leaving aside the issue of the mortal sin and absolution and confession and all that business. So if the sin was open and public, in full view of everyone, 
the reparation also has to be public. Now, bishops have the duty to instruct and sometimes discipline all their flock, not just those who are private citizens, very quietly living out of the public eye. Therefore, they must correct politicians who err in a public way. Instead, some bishops remain silent about public acts of their most famous subjects. For example, after the very public communion made by the former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Cardinal Egan, the Archbishop of New York, was silent. And that's what brought Robert Novak to his keyboard. Where no one lives on account of the pace But seven million are screaming for space New York, New York, it's a visitor's place Hey, look who's coming back Tom and Andy Hey, Tom, Andy Hey, fellas, how was your day in New York? Wonderful, I don't remember a thing Awful, I remember everything Well, the Novak article ended the silence in New York And that is very apparent I think we have to say that it was this this uh, article that prompted Cardinal Egan to make a public statement. And so the same afternoon that Novak's piece appeared in the Washington Post, Cardinal Egan's office issued a press statement. Let's hear it. For immediate release, April 28, 2008. The following is a statement issued by Edward Cardinal Egan. Quote, the Catholic Church clearly teaches that abortion is a grave offense against the will of God. Throughout my years as Archbishop of New York, I have repeated this teaching in sermons, articles, addresses, and interviews without hesitation or compromise of any kind. Thus it was that I had an understanding with Mr. Rudolph Giuliani when I became Archbishop of New York and he was serving as Mayor of New York, that he was not to receive the Eucharist because of his well-known support of abortion. I deeply regret that Mr. Giuliani received the Eucharist during the papal visit here in New York, and I will be seeking a meeting with him to insist that he abide by our understanding. Cardinal Egan for this statement. It's clear, it is to the point, and I sincerely hope that this public press release was really only just the public reaction that we are being allowed to read, even though it was, you know, sparked by uh, Robert Novak's column. I'm sure it was. 
I really hope that uh, already a move had been made in private uh, to take care of the situation, and now at least we're getting a, a public statement. Which is, and this is very good, and it's very well done. It's a sound statement. The blogosphere has made it very well known, as the rest of the press. It's a great starting point for a new discussion of all these issues. So we should leave aside, I think, be willing to leave aside things that were done or not done in the past and take this as a great starting point. And as such, this statement raises a huge question. Will there be a similar statement from the Archdiocese of Washington or any of the other dioceses out there which face similar situations? As I mentioned, uh, there was a reaction in the blogosphere to this whole business of uh, Rudy Giuliani receiving communion in New York, uh, and uh, the reactions in the blogosphere were very sharp. Uh, there was a lot of discussion that's still going on. Uh, one commenter on my blog, What Does the Prayer Really Say?, enthusiastically brought up the example of St. Ambrose of Milan courageously facing down the Emperor Theodosius back toward the end of the 4th century. And, well, this is what the commenter wrote. Whenever this subject of denying communion to pro-abortion politicians comes up, I am reminded of the time when St. Ambrose of Milan not only denied communion to Emperor Theodosius, but met him on the steps of his cathedral as the emperor and his courtiers were arriving for mass, and refused to let him come into the church. In front of everyone, St. Ambrose told him in so many words, What do you think you're doing here? Theodosius' sin was having suppressed a rebellion by ordering the deaths of everyone in the rebellious town, regardless of age or sex. St. Ambrose told him he was excommunicated until he had done public penance for his crime. Chastened, the emperor withdrew and did his penance and was readmitted to communion. There it is. Well, since in these podcasts we very often hear from the fathers of the church and hear about them, I think we should dig into this story about St. Ambrose and the Emperor Theodosius and let's see what happened. Uh, after all, we drilled into whether or not the late Archbishop Lefebvre was like a modern-day St. Athanasius, and he's not. The analogy is too weak to stand but I digress. Uh, so we should look into the situation of Ambrose back in the 4th century. Let's see what was going on. Now, where did the commenter get this story about Ambrose? It's really pretty famous. It seems to have passed into uh, common, sort of common accepted stories about the fathers of the church because of the life of St. Ambrose written by a certain Paulinus of Milan who knew Ambrose personally, wrote a biography of him, and uh, later he knew St. Augustine of Hippo, 
he had moved to North Africa after Ambrose died, and Augustine, as a matter of fact, lets us know that Paulinus was a deacon. And the text of the life of, uh, written by Paulinus is dated from either around 412, maybe 422, scholars are divided. And this life, like many things, uh, writings of the ancient world, has a lot of flaws of chronology and perhaps even of fact. Things are dressed up a little more than uh, we permit in biography today. But one of the important things is that uh, Ambrose uh, was such an influential character in the judgment of Paulinus, and of course he certainly was, that he merited a biography. So even though we take it with a grain of salt, uh, like a lot of ancient writing about uh, saints and great figures. Uh, it's very helpful to have this. So to help us understand what transpired between Ambrose and Milan and Theodosius, let's listen first to what Paulinus has to say. Around the same time, great distress overtook the bishop concerning the city of Thessalonica, when he found out that the city was nearly destroyed. For the emperor had promised him that he was going to pardon the citizens of the aforesaid city, but the counts acted secretly with the emperor, unbeknownst to the bishop, and the city was given over to the sword until the third hour, and many innocent people were slaughtered. When the bishop became aware of the deed, he did not allow the emperor to enter the church, and he judged him unworthy of the assembly of the church and of participation in the sacraments until he did public penance. The emperor defended himself to him by observing that David had committed both adultery and murder, but the immediate response was, quote, If you have followed him in this sin, then follow him in his amendment. When the most clement emperor heard this, he was so moved that he did not shrink from public penance, and the improvement that resulted from his amendment won for him a second victory. Now that was an ancient biographical account of what happened, but let's get a modern source. Let's pick up this handy book right here by by Boniface Ramsey. Uh, and keep in mind that Ambrose uh, was himself, when you listen to this, Ambrose himself was uh, a noble uh, from a noble family. It was a political, military family. Uh, he himself had been an imperial public official before being acclaimed as Bishop of Milan. And as Bishop of Milan, he was uh, used to wielding huge political clout. He was used to dealing with and instructing emperors, for example, and being involved in matters of succession, of you know, who is going to be in power, and so forth. And the story that we're going to hear now, uh, this account from Ramsey, uh, bears witness to the fact that Ambrose had a, already a strong, a very good relationship with Theodosius. It wasn't one entirely, uh, it wasn't based only on conflict because otherwise Ambrose would never have been able to dare to do what he did. So we can dig into it now uh, with Ramsey. Now, uh, just to set this up a little bit, we're at a point 
in the history between Ambrose and Theodosius, where Ambrose had really annoyed Theodosius seriously over a, in a conflict, a spat concerning continuing public subsidies for pagan cults. And Theodosius was so annoyed with Ambrose that he forbade Ambrose to come near him. And Ambrose, uh, to his credit, respected that, and he left Theodosius alone. So now let's hear Ramsey's account. There next occurred the tragic event that, from the political perspective, gave Ambrose a clear ascendancy over the emperor. In 390, perhaps toward the middle of the year, the people of the Greek city of Thessalonica rioted over the imprisonment of one of their favorite charioteers on a charge of immorality, and in the course of the uproar the commander of the garrison, Botheric, was slain, along with several other officials. Theodosius, enraged by this act, allowed his fury to overcome him, and he devised a punishment that stunned even a world habituated to imperial excesses. He ordered his soldiers to lure the citizens of Thessalonica into a public theater and to massacre them there. Ambrose, as in the past, was somehow informed of the emperor's decision. Although Theodosius' prohibition on the bishop's access to him was still in force, Ambrose approached him several times to plead with him to rescind his order. When at last he did so, it was too late. Theodoret reports in his ecclesiastical history that as many as 7,000 died in the carnage. Ambrose now wrote privately to the emperor, expressing his affection for Theodosius, but demanding that he do penance. Paulinus gives us the impression, which has been seized upon by the popular imagination, that Ambrose turned Theodosius away at the door of his cathedral when he came to participate in the Eucharist shortly after word of the massacre had reached Milan. What took place, however, aside from the fact that the emperor was not permitted to receive the sacraments and that he performed public penance, is the subject of speculation. The excommunication and penance considered appropriate for the crime were, at any rate, short by the standards of the ancient church. By Christmas time they were lifted, and the ordinary drama of an emperor's ecclesiastical humiliation was over. Now that was the version by Boniface Ramsey in his book simply called Ambrose. It's in a series, The Early Church Fathers, and it is published by Routledge, London and New York. It was first published in 1997. But, dear listeners, we want an even fuller picture, I think. So, I have another book here uh, called Ambrose of Milan, Political Letters and Speeches, translated with an introduction and notes by J. H. W. G. Liebeschutz with the assistance of Carol Hill. You get all that? J-H-W-G. Liebeschutz, how many names does a fellow really need? Anyway, um, this is published by Liverpool University Press. And uh, this book, and as a matter of fact, the one by Ramsey, 
were both sent to me by listeners and readers, readers of the What Does the Prayer Really Say blog. They got it off of my Amazon.com wish list. It's really nice to be able to use some of these wonderful tools and gifts that people gave me uh, to help a larger audience. So let's hear this account uh, from Liebeschutz. In retaliation for the murder of a Magister Militum at Thessalonica, a large number of civilians had been massacred in that city. Theodosius had not explicitly ordered what happened, but it was an order of his which had made the massacre possible, and he came to feel sufficiently guilty to issue a law that henceforth the carrying out of a sentence of capital punishment should be deferred thirty days. As soon as Ambrose was informed about the massacre, he wrote to the emperor, urging him that sin must be followed by penance, and warning him that unless Theodosius did penance for the massacre, he would be unable to give him the sacrament. This is the essential message of a long and skillful letter. Theodosius complied. He confessed his sin. He did public penance by appearing in church without his crown, and he was readmitted to the sacraments after the period of penance had elapsed. This is an altogether extraordinary and unique incident. It is anachronistic to dismiss it as essentially a brilliant piece of public relations. It was surely necessary for a bishop of exceptionally strong personality to confront a pious emperor, genuinely weighed down by a sense of guilt. It is, moreover, very difficult to believe that the very sharp laws issued shortly after, prohibiting sacrifice in Italy and in Egypt, were not the product of the same situation. Okay, I think we're starting to get a fuller picture here. The emperor did not order that massacre, but he made it possible by some order that he gave. And so he is responsible, but not directly. But the buck stops on his desk, or maybe the denarius stops on his desk. In a similar way, uh, Catholic politicians who vote in favor of abortion don't go out and commit the abortions themselves, but they do bear some responsibility for what happens. Uh, even if it might not be enough to incur uh, the excommunication that is found in the Code of Canon Law. Uh, see, the problem with Catholic politicians is that their words and actions are so very public. They cause scandal, harm to the faith and morals of other Catholics, and they can also lead to very great evils uh, on a, whole, a level of all of society, and therefore they need public redress. And a bishop must require public correction before someone who is erred so publicly can be readmitted to communion. And in this way, there is some similarity to the situation of, say, an American Catholic bishop who calls uh, a Catholic politician to account and says he can't receive Holy Communion publicly until he's made redress. And, on the other hand, St. Ambrose and Theodosius back in the 4th century. Now, I wouldn't want to press the parallel too far, but there are some principles that are the same. 
And if that was a, a, a consistent and correct reaction in the ancient church, then it's probably a consistent and correct reaction in the modern church. And it's something that the Holy Father has called us to, uh, to be consistent in our faith, in our beliefs, and what we do in the public square, uh, both as laymen on the one hand and also as clerics, and certainly for bishops. You know, he called the bishops to a greater responsibility as pastors when he had gathered them all together in Washington, D.C. in a kind of a plenary meeting of the conference and addressed them all. He called them to a greater responsibility and consistency. And so in New York, uh, where and in, also in Washington, where there was all sorts of hijinks concerning Holy Communion, we have an opportunity to work through these issues again in the wake of what Benedict the Sixteenth actually did, and the the fact that he came here has brought this to the fore again. And so we have a prominent journalist who is a convert, who places the issue before the eyes of a nation, and then an archbishop stating uh, publicly what I hope he had already done out of the public eye in private. He called upon one of his errant flock to avoid receiving communion. And that's a very interesting sequence of events by any standard, and it's a direct fruit of Papa Ratzinger's visit to New York City. New York, New York, New York, New York, New York, New York. Voicemail. I have a voicemail number through Skype for the USA that's 651 314 4554 and one for the UK. It's 0208 123 1545. I also have the Skype name WDTPRS, that's Whiskey Delta Tango Papa Romeo Sierra. And when you call that number, you're not going to get me, and I'm not going to return your calls, probably, but you can leave it, it goes directly into my voicemail, and you can leave a nice short voicemail real, with real clear enunciation that helps me out. But here's the question I just got. Let's listen to it. Hi, Father. As an avid reader of your columns in The Wanderer and the blog, I have a question. Could you please address when it's proper for servers, 
altar servers to wear red as opposed to altar servers wearing black cassocks. I notice that when the Pope is saying Mass, his servers are wearing black cassocks. Please, if you could address it, I know there'd be a lot of people who would like to read it. Thank you, Father. God bless. Well, thanks for that. Now, first, let's make a distinction. Now, some of the servers at Papal Masses are really masters of ceremony, and they may, in fact, be Monsignors, and so they wear the choir cassock appropriate for a Monsignor of of the grade of Monsignor they may be. It's usually a violet color called, in Italian, paonazza. Paonazza. However, there is an old privilege that the MCs for... Uh, a bishop's mass or cardinal's mass would wear also a paonazza cassock even if he isn't a monsignor so sometimes you'll see a very young cleric up there looking like a very young monsignor as the master of ceremonies also in the basilica of saint peter here's a little trivia for you the little altar boys in the elementary and middle school that's attached to the chapter of the basilica there's a minor seminary involved with the, the basilica they wear a violet cassock of the same colors as Monsignors, and bishops too, as a privilege of their honored position. So they get kind of this honorary Monsignor cassock. Little kids. Furthermore, seminarians in Rome who might serve papal masses, they would properly wear the house cassock or the choir dress of their college or of their religious order. Now, most diocesan seminarians would wear the black Roman cassock. Nothing special about it. It's just the one with the black buttons down it and a black sash around the waist. But students from other colleges, national colleges in Rome, have different kinds of cassocks of different colors. For example, the Scots College, they have a dark purple cassock with a red sash. And the Germans have a dark red cassock with a black sash. And I bet you can guess what color the Irish cassock is. Things can get pretty colorful when members of the different colleges are around. Uh, I was involved in some of those masses when I was a seminarian. It was always interesting to see those house cassocks. They were at one time absolutely normal, and then they they just disappeared from the life of the church in Rome. And now slowly but surely they're starting to come back. Uh, The Americans, for example, I hear that a few of the seminarians uh, I have gotten uh, either dusted off old ones or maybe they've gotten new ones they're a house cassock for the North American College it's an adapted form of the old propaganda college's house cassock because the United States was once under the jurisdiction of propaganda fide it was a propaganda country as it said so what they did is they added a little uh, blue to the cassock so they have a black cassock with some uh, red buttons and a blue sash. They, basically, with a white collar, they get a red, nice red, white, and blue thing going on. It's really nice to see these old traditions coming back. But still, uh, really, to get to the question, there isn't all that much significance to the color. Even in parishes, for example, you'll see uh, some uh, altar boys are in black cassocks. Sometimes they're in red cassocks. Uh, that's really just local custom. It's what they've chosen. There isn't any significance to it. 
Uh, the most important thing is that servers at mass be properly dressed and uh, very in a very dignified way. And for boys and men, and for them only, that should be the cassock and surplus. With that, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, please come and visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com, Whiskey Delta Tango, Papa Romeo Sierra. Get involved in the conversations. And uh, I just want to add a special greeting uh, to Stephen Morgan in England. Uh, we had a conversation in the car during my last visit there which comes back to me every once in a while and makes me feel guilty because he was complaining to me that he had to listen to reruns, oldie podcasts in his car when driving. So after a long absence, here's another one for you, Stephen. So pray for me as I will for you.